9. On the same morning that McVeigh called at the Guam routing office, Japan's Supreme Council for the Direction of the War was also going through the motions. The Council met to discuss its position on the Potsdam Declaration, issued by the Big Three Powers demanding Japan surrender. In the end, the Council decided not to release a position. Instead, Prime Minister Suzuki and Foreign Minister Togo of Japan agreed that the Empire would mokutsatsu the Declaration, which meant to remain in wise and masterly inactivity, or to treat with silent contempt. Tokyo newspapers took this inaction to mean that the emperor and his government rejected the Allies' demand for surrender, and the world received it the same way. Potsdam therefore had no effect on Muchitsura Hashimoto, who had pointed his boat toward an enemy shipping crossroads where he planned to lie in wait. There was a sector in the central Philippine Sea where American lines of communication out of Leyte, Saipan, Okinawa, Guam, Palau, and Ulithi converged. The area could prove a fruitful lair from which to ambush the Allied fleet, Hashimoto thought. The intersecting routes covered a broad expanse, however, and he realized it was a geographic gamble. He might miss altogether a chance to attack. Indeed, by the time I-58 arrived on the Okinawa-Saipan route, the ocean seemed empty of targets. So Hashimoto steamed southeast to the Okinawa-Guam route. Night fell, and a lustrous vanilla moon created for a time excellent conditions for attack. But the lunar glow soon melted away, and with it, opportunity. Hashimoto ordered his navigator to turn south and proceed at speed to the east-west American sea lane that connected Guam with Leyte. Then he walked aft and slipped into the boat Shinto shrine to pray. In Opera Harbor, whaleboats whisked about, ferrying food, mail, and supplies out to the anchored ships. Aboard Indianapolis, the duty crew that was stuck aboard gazed longingly past the whaleboats toward a primitive beach dotted with coconut palms and banana trees that shimmered in the wind. Some hoped to get a glimpse of one of the exotic native girls they'd heard lived on the island. Those not ogling the beach muscled food and supplies from the whaleboats and loaded fuel from a barge, worried that this port visit might be truncated at any moment, as their port call had been at Pearl. Despite the activity, the port was strangely hushed, with ships mooring and sailing without signal, this still being a war zone. In the afternoon, McVeigh's navigator, Johns Hopkins Jammy, called at the routing office and was presented with the routing instructions prepared by Waldron's team. Janney and Waldron huddled over the plotting chart and discussed the route. Indianapolis would depart Opera Harbor at 9 a.m. on Saturday, July 28th. She was to proceed at 15.7 knots and arrive off Hamanan for anti-aircraft gunnery practice on the morning of Tuesday, July 31st, a distance of 1,123 nautical miles. After that, it was just under 50 miles to Leyte, where Indy was to arrive at 11 a.m.
Jenny perused the printed instructions. Commanding officers are at all times responsible for the safe navigation of their ships. May depart from prescribed routing when, in their judgment, weather, currents, or other navigation hazards jeopardize the safety of the ship. Zigzag at the discretion of the commanding officer. Zigzagging was an anti-submarine warfare, ASW, tactic in which surface convoys and ships sailing alone frequently altered course to port or starboard. This standard maneuver was meant to confuse enemy sub-commanders as to the true course and also made it harder for subs to score torpedo hits. Some ASW experts argued that the maneuver had become so standard that enemy sub-skippers figured it into their firing calculations. The zigzag language and the rest of Indy's routing instructions were boilerplate, and Janney had seen it all before. He had also seen at least a portion of the attached intelligence report, which included a trio of reported submarine contacts. Janney reviewed the contacts with Waldron. All three were within 150 miles of Route Petty, one to the north and two to the south. Janney wasn't worried about them. If additional intelligence were obtained, he knew he would receive it via the FOX schedule, a series of encrypted messages broadcast directly to ships at sea. Back at the ship, Janney briefed McKay on the routing orders. Confirmation that there would be no escort prompted the usual banter. Here we go again. Apart from his success with previous solo passengers, McVeigh had sound reasons to be unperturbed about this one. Before taking command of Indianapolis, he headed the Joint Intelligence Staff in Washington, D.C. In that post, McVeigh would likely have known about Ultra and its near-real-time intel on enemy movement, and that Carter's office was privy to Ultra's limited distribution. If Carter said things were quiet, McVeigh had reason to believe him. That Northover offered McVeigh a speed of advance as leisurely as 15.7 knots, buttressed what Carter had told him, that there was nothing to worry about. At 9.10 a.m. on July 28th, Casey Moore ordered his sea and anchor detail topside, where they weighed anchor and cast off lines. On the bridge, McVeigh rang for steam, and Indianapolis sailed out of Opera Harbor. Waldron, the routing officer, transmitted a standard departure message, date-time group 280032, to his counterpart, Lieutenant Stuart Gibson, at Tacloban, Philippines. According to the message, Indianapolis would sail from Guam to Leyte via Route Petty at 15.7 knots and would arrive off Leyte on July 31st at 8 a.m. About three hours after that, Indianapolis would pull into port. The Philippine Sea was so vast a territory that it fell under two naval authorities. Commander Mariana's area, Vice Admiral George Murray, headquartered at Guam, and Acting Philippine Sea Frontier Commander Commodore Norman C. Gillette, headquartered 1,100 miles almost due west at Leyte. 
Gillette, an old hand, who had also served in World War I, had been the Philippine Sea Frontier Chief of Staff since October 1944. Now he was acting commander because his boss, Vice Admiral James Kaufman, was away on leave. According to Guam's departure message, Indianapolis would sometime on July 30th cross the CHOP line. CHOP was an acronym cobbled together from pronounceable letters in the term Change of Operational Command. This was important. When a ship crossed that line, it was said to have chopped from one officer's responsibility to another's. Geographically, the CHOP line was the 130-degree east line of longitude that ended Murray's jurisdiction and began Gillette's. The day after Hashimoto intercepted the American shipping route between Guam and Leyte, an enemy aircraft popped up on radar and forced him to dive. Hashimoto wasn't worried. Radar had improved, and he no longer felt as if he were fighting blind. It was July 28th, I-58's 10th day out of Kure. The sub's innards felt hot and dank. The stale air smelled of pickled fish from the galley, diesel fuel, and sewage. Except for onions, the vegetables had run out, leaving only tinned food. The canned sweet potatoes, which most sailors agreed tasted like sand or ashes, were particularly unpopular. At an evening meal shortly after departing Kure, Hashimoto had dined with his chitin crews and explained I-58's orders. The boat was to move into the Philippine Sea, west of the Marianas, eventually positioning itself on a vector line of 160 to attack enemy ships off the eastern coast of the Philippine Islands. During the meal, Hashimoto and his officers toasted the chitin crews, wishing them success. Each time Hashimoto deployed the special attack boats, he found it painful. Now, though, the war was going so badly that the number of men lost in battle was increasing across the whole Japanese Navy, not just special attack units, and the subfleet was getting the worst of it. With the possible exception of destroyers, more submarines had been lost by the Japanese Navy than any other type of craft. Losses in 1942 and 1943 had been relatively light, but in 1944, the Americans gathered themselves with the cataclysmic power of a killing storm. Since then, more than a hundred Japanese submarines had been sunk, a dozen this spring alone in U.S. attacks in the Ryukyus and, most brazenly, in the Sea of Japan itself. Hashimoto had watched as many of his submarine school classmates were sent into the breach, never to return. With young and old alike dying in great numbers, his chitin pilot's fate seemed in some ways inevitable. Perhaps their sacrifice would turn the tide of war, or perhaps at the end of this war, everyone he knew would be dead, including his crew. Like most Japanese, he had been trained since birth in Shinto, the way of the gods. But he had perhaps a stronger tie to the faith than others, since his family had been caring for the Umenomiya Taisha Shrine in Kyoto. 
Hashimoto's father was Kanushi, the priest of the shrine, which was known for its great stone lanterns, blossoming plum trees, and towering spruce. For more than 1,300 years, the shrine and its stewards had honored the kami, or spirits, of the emperor and empress. The land and buildings had now been in Hashimoto's family for centuries. In caring for the shrine, the family maintained its links with the spirits of their ancestors, stretching back to ancient times. Hashimoto's eldest brother had been a full colonel in the Japanese army. He would likely have taken over the shrine after the war, but he was killed during a battle in North China. Since then, succession had been in doubt. Certainly one of Hashimoto's older brothers, he was the fifth and last son of nine children, might take over priestly duties from their father one day. But that was a worry for another time. For now, Hashimoto sailed west along the guam leyte route, hunting Americans. When Indianapolis sailed from Guam, her departure message listed three action addressees, recipients who had some responsibility to act. Lieutenant Commander Jules Sancho, the port director at Tacloban, the Marianas Shipping Control Office at Guam, and Rear Admiral Lind McCormick, commander of Task Group 95.7. This time, McCormick received the message. But not having received SyncPAC's July 26th message about arranging training for Indianapolis, the Admiral was confused about why Captain McVeigh would be reporting to Task Group 95.7. The group had been in existence for only a few days. All the other ships that had reported to McCormick had performed strenuous duty in Okinawa and were being sent back to rest and refit for the next large amphibious operation. Indianapolis, on the other hand, was Spruance's flagship. McCormick thought it strange that Indy should report to him though he supposed that the Pacific Fleet commander could send his ship anywhere he wished. McCormick would be at sea with a training group around the time Indy was to arrive at Leyte. On the other hand, he wouldn't be surprised if she were diverted to Okinawa, where the fleet was short by one cruiser. Indy's 280032 departure message included several information addressees. Commands with interest in, but no required action on, Indy's movement. Among them were Task Force 95 Commander Vice Admiral Jesse Ohlendorf, as well as Spruance, Murray, and Gillette. On each side of the Philippine Sea, surface operations staff were charged with tracking Indy's passage using her PIM, her Plan of Intended Movement. In the Philippines, Captain Alfred Granham's operations staff entered the ship's movement data in a memo record and on the Philippine Sea Frontier's plotting board. At Guam, the Marianas Surface Operations Staff entered Indianapolis's departure on their plotting board. At that moment, responsibility for her progress passed to Captain Oliver Naquin. A New Orleans, Louisiana native, Naquin, 41, had seen more action than most. On November 23, 1939, he was skipper of the submarine USS Squalus, which sank 
during a routine training patrol. Twenty-six men drowned, but Naquin and 32 others were rescued after 40 hours trapped on the bottom of the sea. In November 1942, he was navigator on the heavy cruiser USS New Orleans when a torpedo blew off 150 feet of her bow at Guadalcanal. Naquin, who received a bronze star for valor, seemed to have a talent for survival. As I-58's periscope lanced through the surface chop at 2 p.m., Hashimoto leaned into the eyepiece and a surge of joy leapt through his heart. A large three-masted ship, a tanker, was creeping across the surface. At last, he thought, face to face with the elusive enemy. Hashimoto gave the order to dive and nudged his boat closer to the target. Since he could not be sure of the positions of any lurking destroyers, he decided to remain out of torpedo range and instead deploy his suicide pilots. Numbers 1 and 2 Chiton, stand by, he ordered. At 2.31 p.m., Chiton 2 launched. Ten minutes later, Chiton 1's pilot shouted, Three cheers for the Emperor, then slipped his securing band and was off. Using his periscope, Hashimoto watched through a curtain of South Sea squalls until he could no longer see the tanker. Fifty minutes later, the sub's hydrophones picked up the sound of an explosion. Ten minutes passed, and then another blast. Hashimoto gave the order to surface and swept the horizon with his periscope, but he couldn't see anything. Another squall cloaked the view. 10. Aboard the destroyer escort USS Albert T. Harris, Lieutenant Junior Grade Jordan Shepard peered off the starboard beam at lights blinking from a ship 14 miles away. The staccato flashes were Morse code, and a Harris signalman unraveled the message. She was the merchant ship SS Wild Hunter, and she'd spotted an enemy submarine. Last known coordinates, 10-25 north, 131-45 east. The position was about 75 nautical miles south of the Guam-Letty Sea Lane, known as Route Petty. Sound General Quarters, Shepard, Harris's officer of the deck, said calmly, set material condition affirm. An alarm like a rhythmic clanging bell echoed out on the 1MC in urgent bursts. Every sailor on the ship hopped to and sprinted to his battle station, dogging down doors and hatches for maximum watertight integrity. Commence zigzagging, Shepard said. He also ordered a second boiler brought online to generate more speed. All this was standard procedure. Harris had responded to many of these calls, but this late in the war in this part of the ocean, most of them were wild goose chases. Things had been quiet for Harris since June, when she supported the seizure of Brunei, Borneo, under the command of Lieutenant Commander Sidney King. The ship was then reassigned to Escort Division 77 in July, and had been escorting convoys between the Philippine Islands. By now, they'd learned that merchant sailors were a jumpy bunch, and their sub-sightings 
almost always a bad case of nerves. This sighting, however, was very much real. At 4.29 p.m., Wild Hunter, under the command of Reserve Lieutenant Bruce Maxwell, had sighted a periscope broad on the port beam, just 3,000 yards away. The ship went to general quarters, and Maxwell's gunners scrambled to their weapons, but the periscope slid quickly out of sight. Eleven minutes later, a second periscope was seen breaking the surface, dead astern and closer by a third. Maxwell's gunners fired a single shot, which landed dead on target. The periscope disappeared. Wild Hunter transmitted two messages, six minutes apart, reporting the action. Both were received by service operations at Tacloban, Captain Alfred Granham's office, the same office tracking Indianapolis. Granham's office then dispatched Harris to the Wild Hunter scene with instructions to keep them advised. Now on Harris's bridge, the helmsman zigged, then zagged, steering the ship at 30-degree angles back and forth across base course. Nearby, in the sound hut, a headphone sonar man sat at a console, sweeping searchlight sonar across suspect bearings. Still, many of Harris's crew couldn't help but wonder, had another merchant skipper summoned them to chase yet another wild goose? Near the bow, gunner's mates climbed up to man the anti-submarine rocket projector mounted behind the forward five-inch gun. Each of the weapon's 24 7.2-inch wide missiles slid onto its own rod, or spigot socket. When empty, the rows of rods resembled spines, earning the weapon a nickname, the Hedgehog. Adding this newer technology had increased the Allied submarine kill rate tenfold, relegating the less effective depth charge to a secondary weapon. At 6.10 p.m., topside lookouts on Harris spotted an object on the horizon. But it was only a buoy, they discovered a few minutes later. After four years of war, there were all kinds of flotsam adrift in the Pacific. Captain King ordered it sunk, and just as his 20-millimeter gunners obliged, sonar man second-class Lefevre, sitting in the sound hut just off the bridge, called out, Sonar contact! It was a strong echo that Lefevre had been able to pick up even amid the gunfire. Eleven hundred yards, target width, ten degrees. In the sound hut, Harris's anti-submarine warfare officer, James McNulty, scribbled a notation. Bearing width 10 degrees indicated midget submarine. 724 miles east of Harris, Dr. Earl Henry decided to split his time between catching up on dental work and finishing his model of Indianapolis. During this easy passage, he was tackling both in the dental clinic. He had moved his six-foot model there because it was crowding his cabin mate, Ken Stout, the communications officer. With the war winding to a close, Henry was beginning to feel an urgency to get the project done. Theoretically, he could finish the model even if he were to detach from Indy, but that idea didn't appeal to him. It was important that the model be an exact replica of the actual ship 
and the only way to achieve that was to finish it while he was still aboard. Henry found himself a little distracted, though. When the mail came aboard at Tinian, he had received his usual trove. There was one letter he was looking for in particular, and when he saw Jane's distinctive script on several envelopes, he tore them all open. Finally, in two gorgeous photographs, Earl Henry Jr., the cutest little fellow ever born. Henry sprinted to hunt down his closest friends on the ship, Doctors Haynes and Modisher. During off hours, the three plus Stout kept up a running game of bridge during which little Earl was often a topic of conversation. They knew that Jane had delivered early and that Henry was waiting for photographs. Haynes warned the dentist not to be too concerned if the pictures weren't flattering. All prematures look like the wrath of God, Haynes had said. But when Henry tracked down both docks in sickbay and handed over the snapshots, Haynes clapped Henry on the shoulder and said, He looks grand, Earl, just grand. Modisher agreed. Paternal pride bloomed on Henry's face. Nothing short of effervescent, he darted out of sickbay and ran off to show Captain McVeigh. Now, sailing toward Leyte, Henry figured he'd shown every officer on the ship. Stout, who had to live with him, was probably tired of hearing about it, Henry mused. He let his mind roll forward to a time when he and Jane could settle into domesticity. He was looking forward to caring for the new baby, even letting Jane catch up on all the sleep she missed while he was away. Henry knew there could still be tough going ahead, but V.E. Day had certainly made the picture brighter. Now the Allies could concentrate on pounding Japan alone. Since spring, stories had streamed into the wardroom and the dental suite of Japan's sometimes bizarre resistance. Word was they were training schoolgirls to fight with sticks. Who would put children on their front lines, Henry wondered. A nation like that needed to be utterly destroyed, he told Jane. If the fanatical resistance continued, it would be. Aboard Harris, gunner's mates on the forecastle fired the Hedgehog, a 24-missile salvo. Once airborne, the projectiles bloomed into a ring, then plunged for the sea. The missiles pierced the surface in a foamy white circle 250 yards ahead of the ship and descended at a rate of 23 feet per second toward the sonar contact. The gun crew and bridge team stared at the water, waiting. A hit would cause the contact-fused missiles to detonate, signaled by a spectacular roar of foam exploding just off the bow. As twilight fell, the quartermaster made a log entry. 1842. Fired Hedgehog. No results. Still, Combat Information Center personnel heard two detonations. Due to the depth of the water, McNulty thought they'd hit the sub. Suddenly, the chase was on. The sound hut regained contact. The gunner's mates hustled to reload the hedgehog. The sonar team called out new bearings, with Shepard ordering the helmsman, come left or come right. The quartermaster had to work fast to keep up his log. 
1843, regained contact. 1846, commenced run. 1852, fired hedgehog. 1857, commenced dry run. 1925, regained contact, commenced hedgehog attack. 1930, fired hedgehog. 1942, regained contact. 1947, fired hedgehog. Each salvo pierced the waves and disappeared without payoff. Each time the hedgehog fired, Lefevre, the sonar man, lost contact due to sound reverberations. But as soon as these faded, he quickly reacquired. After the fourth attack, Harris's skipper, King, ordered an end to general quarters. This did not mean he was giving up. There were few things in the ocean that created multiple shifting sonar returns. So King knew he had a sub. Highly probable is the term he used in reporting to the Surface Operations Office at Leyte. But during general quarters, all hands are manning their battle stations. And since King wanted to keep his men sharp, he backed down his posture to a war cruising watch and set material condition Baker. This allowed the crew to open some of the ship's ventilation ducts and enabled his watch teams to rotate and rest between shifts as Harris settled in for what looked to be a serious chase. 11. Following Harris's report of an enemy subcontact, Captain Alfred Granham at Philippine Sea Frontier broadcast a message marked Urgent Secret. ATT Harris DE-447 investigating periscope sighting reported by SS Wild Hunter reports sound contact. Probable submarine. Proceed and assist. In light of the ultra-information coming out of Admiral Ernest King's Combat Intel Office, as well as the sinking of Underhill, the apparent spike in enemy submarine activity concerned Granham's boss, Commander Gillette, greatly. In response, he had increased anti-submarine patrols in the area and diverted numerous ships. While Commodore Carter had told McVeigh at Guam that things were quiet and there was nothing to worry about, Gillette would later term the fresh IJN sorties into the Philippine Sea a recognized threat. At Guam, both Sinkpack Advance, Carter's office, and Commander Mariana's, Vice Admiral Murray's office, received Granham's message about Wild Hunter in the wee hours of July 29th, just after 1.30 a.m. Sinkpack Advance was part of a powerful network of stations that broadcast the FOX schedule an unbroken river of messages and orders that streamed out from headquarters to the fleet. In every radio shack on every ship, guarding the Fox was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. A rotating line of experienced radio men clapped on headphones, laid hands on the typewriter or mill, and typed down any traffic pertinent to their vessel. Each message came through encrypted, as a series of five-character alphanumerics. When a radio man snatched a message from the stream, he typed it down and passed it to his chief, who passed it to the code room for decryption and distribution.
This was easier in theory than in practice. The Fox broadcasts were receive-only and uninterruptible. There was no way to stop the flow or ask for a repeat of anything that had been blocked by static, a fading signal, or even a watchstander's ill-timed sneeze. Still, each discrete message was numbered, and all were rebroadcast again and again. If a ship afloat didn't catch an important one the first time, her radio men might catch it again the next day, or the day after that. Aboard Harris, Lieutenant Carl Rao relieved Shepard as officer of the deck at 8 p.m. Knight pulled her blanket across the sea, and soon the only sounds interrupting the quiet were the bass hum of the ship's engines and the splash of waves breaking over the bow. Rao made his first entry in the deck log. Steaming as before on various courses and speeds holding contact on a probable subcontact. Six minutes later, the ship's fathometer picked up a definite sounding at 18 fathoms, just over a hundred feet, directly below the ship. In the sound hut, the sonar man Lefevre strained, listening. Only a man-made object could trigger so shallow a reading in a sea so deep. Five minutes passed, then ten. Contact, bearing 310, range 1300 yards. Contact, I, Rao called, fire full pattern. Topside, in full darkness, the Hedgehog team launched another 24-missile burst which splashed down ahead of the ship. Again, no result. Then, at 8.26 p.m., screw beats. This shout from the sonar men changed the game completely. They had identified the distinctive chuck-chuck-chuck sound of submarine propeller blades. Nothing else in the sea made that sound. At 8.47 p.m., sonar heard screws again. Harris's quarry was no longer a probable sub. Now it was certain. McNulty logged the type of sonar echo, submarine. At 9 p.m., 2100 in military time, the ship passed directly over the submarine and lost contact due to short range. The next hour was a rapid-fire exchange of shouts. Contact! Come left! Come right! between sonar and helm as the gun crew topside awaited orders to fire. Once again, the quartermaster had to scramble to keep the log current. 2116. Regain contact bearing 090, range 975 yards, making dry run. 2118. Lost contact. 2130. Regain contact bearing 298, Range 325 yards. 2132, lost contact. 2140, regain contact bearing 042, range 1650 yards. 2142, lost contact. 2144, regain contact bearing 005, range 1500 yards. The sub zigged and zagged beneath Harris, the sonar team picking up contact first off the starboard beam, then the port bow, then the starboard bow, 
Then, dead ahead. The order went up from Rao. Prepare to fire. At 9.50 p.m., the hedgehog crew fired a full salvo. Sonar quickly lost, then regained contact off the starboard beam. Again, the hedgehog attack failed, and King and Rao conferred. Seven salvos, 168 missiles, and as many misses. Was there something wrong with the hedgehog? King ordered the gun crew to troubleshoot the weapon. He also made a plan. Sonar would hold contact on the sub until daylight, then make a depth charge attack. As quickly as King made the decision, though, new sonar returns revealed the enemy sub making headway, opening distance between itself and Harris. Rao ordered two more salvos from the hedgehog. Again, no results. Twenty minutes before midnight, the gun crew figured out why. The weapon's gyro indicator was out of whack. Every salvo Harris had fired for the past six hours had been ten degrees off target. Twelve. July 29, 1945. The Philippine Sea. 490 miles east of Harris, Seaman First Class Sam Lopez began the day in church and ended it shooting dice. Captain McVeigh had declared a rope-yarn Sunday, a holdover term from the days when the crew took a break from regular chores and spent time mending uniforms and hammocks. He knew his men needed a break. In the morning, Father Conway conducted Catholic Mass, with Lopez, a 20-year-old from Monongah, West Virginia, in attendance, along with Harpo Salea and Santos Peña. Later, Modisher and Haynes helped Conway with hymns during the Protestant service. After church, the smoking lamp was lit. The men broke out their cigarettes and looked for something to do. Some played cards, others settled themselves in the lee of a cool breeze and cracked open a book. Not Lopez, though. After three hours shooting dice, he had won so much money that he picked up his lucky dice, kissed them, and threw them overboard. Almost due west, along Indianapolis's track, Harris and her sonar men continued interrogating the sea. The night before, Granham's office at Philippine Sea Frontier logged Harris's evaluation of the presence of an enemy sub just south of Route Petty as highly probable, and noted that Harris had attacked. At 9.37 p.m. on July 28th, Granham sent help dispatching the destroyer transport USS Green to assist in the search. Green caught up with Harris just before 5 a.m. on July 29th and took station 3,500 yards off her starboard beam. At 0755, Green's sonar men called out, Sonar contact. Eight minutes later, she commenced a depth charge run on various headings her gun crew rolling charges off the stern-mounted rails at intervals, bracketing the sub's last known position, trying to trap her for the kill. Floating a little over a mile away, Harris's crew watched as water plumes exploded skyward. 
After a brief loss of contact, Green regained contact and commenced a second depth charge attack along three specific lines. But there was no hit. And then, no contact. Green stood down, now 2,500 yards off Harris's starboard beam. Just after 9 a.m., a PV-1 Ventura, dispatched by Philippine Sea Frontier, thrummed in and took up a circling search. By then, both ships had commenced a retiring search plan, a series of turns that spiraled outward in an attempt to reacquire a wily enemy while tracking his presumed flight from danger. After the adrenaline of Harris's 15-hour close chase, the next hours were deflating. The sonar men persevered, calling out a string of actual and possible contacts, but all of them resulted in the same anticlimactic log entry, non-sub. Commander Mariana's and Sink Pack Advance received traffic, marked Operational Priority Secret, reporting that Harris and Green had lost contact and resumed a retiring search. Harris's quarry had escaped. That meant there was an enemy sub on the loose near Route Petty, and McVeigh and his men were steaming toward it. Indianapolis was still east of the chop line, which meant that Captain Oliver Naquin was responsible for her. But his staff at Guam took no action except to move Indy westward on their plotting board in accordance with her planned speed of advance. For combat intelligence specialists at Guam and Pearl that day, the volume of intercepted operational and aircraft intelligence traffic was light. But ultra-cleared personnel did note an increase in broadcasts to Japanese submarines. The magicians were tracking Hashimoto and the Taman group, but struggling to acquire grid positions assigned to its boats. Earlier traffic seemed to indicate that I-58 was planning to patrol 500 miles north of Palau. But the recovery of that location was only partial. An earlier 7th Fleet assessment had concluded that all Japanese sub-operations had localized in home waters. However, analysts warned that they expected an all-out submarine effort in the final defense of the Empire. The magicians were seeing some of that now. July 29th Ultra Intercepts showed that Japan had added two subs, I-363 and I-366, to the Taman Group and ordered them to sortie in the first week of August. The four original Taman subs were ordered to operate within 50 miles of the Lady Okinawa supply route to intercept and attack enemy shipping. Hashimoto, now 11 days out from Kure, was among the IJN skippers to receive those orders. Already deep in the Philippine Sea, nearly due east of Lady, he decided to improvise. Surfacing his boat under an ashen overcast, he made for the intersection of the north-south line between Okinawa and Palau and the east-west route between Guam and Leyte. That would put him at the dead center of Route Petty.
Indianapolis was moving west-southwest, still at 15.7 knots and zigzagging, slightly south of Route Petty and about 340 miles east of the last known position of the enemy submarine that Harris lost. It was a balmy day in the mid-80s, and a three-knot wind pushed a group of bright cumulus clouds southwest, like ships sailing in company. In the afternoon, lookouts spotted the chunky silhouette of a friendly ship lumbering north. Indy's communications officer, Ken Stout, ordered his men to hail her via the TBS, or Talk Between Ships a short-range line-of-sight communication system. When contact was established, reports conflict as to whether the contact between Indianapolis and LST-779 was visual or by radio. The ship identified herself as LST-779. The acronym stood for Landing Ship Tank, but the irreverent joked that it stood for Large Slow Target. This particular ship had distinguished herself. She was the first LST to reach Iwo Jima, beaching as Japanese gunners lashed her with blistering fire. As part of her business ashore, she gave the Marines an American flag. It would be the one that the men of Indy watched being hoisted aloft on Mount Sarabachi. This day, she was conducting anti-aircraft defense maneuvers, and her captain, Lieutenant Joseph A. Hopkins, warned Indianapolis that his ship was about to conduct firing exercises. Stout and his men acknowledged, and the two ships, both bound for the Philippines, passed out of visual range. In the wardroom that evening, Jannie sat down to eat with Dr. Haynes, Flynn, and several other officers. Dinner was steak and strawberries and Janney would not have been surprised if Flynn left his steak for last. The commander usually ate dessert first and encouraged others to do so as well, a policy that delighted the crew, as well as his daughters, Anne and Carlene, back home. A Jap sub has been spotted along our route, Janney said to the group. Haines's eyes twinkled. Our escort will take care of it. The table erupted in laughter. Strictly speaking, Janney was not supposed to share this kind of information with the doctor, who'd been known to turn a jest into a fact, then carry it all over the ship like the town crier. That's why Captain McVeigh had a policy against loose talk about tactical information. But the wardroom was tight-knit, while McVeigh usually dined alone. And besides, what other news was there to share over dinner? As the 6 to 8 p.m. watch approached, Lieutenant Junior Grade Charles Bright McKissick made his way toward the bridge to relieve the officer of the deck. McKissick, a winsome 24-year-old from McKinney, Texas, had been standing this critical watch for less than a year. Technically, he was still in training, and since the OOD was the direct representative of the skipper, he was careful not to cut any corners. Per McVeigh's standing orders, he had stopped into CIC, Combat Information Center, for a brief on the tactical situation and found nothing out of the ordinary. The deck swayed under McKissick's feet. He judged the seas as somewhere between choppy and rough. 
Before assuming the watch, he picked up the communications board. It contained dispatches and other information for which every OOD was responsible during his watch. McKissick flipped open the metal cover and paged through the message traffic. His eye fell on the dispatch Janney had spoken of, possible enemy submarine contact somewhere ahead. The dispatch included latitude-longitude information, 10-26 north, 131-45 east. Over the past dozen hours, an equal number of messages concerning USS Harris's submarine hunt had burned across the Philippine Sea between Captain Granham's office in the Philippines and Captain Naquin's at Guam. Most were also streaming out on one or more of the Fox schedules. Salting this chatter were such troubling terms as oil slick, the ghost residue left on the ocean's surface by a submarine, sound contact with engine propeller, and evaluation positive. A message marked Operational Priority Secret noted that Harris attacked ten times with hedgehogs and that USS Green had joined in the hunt, contributing two depth charge attacks. Negative results, lost contact, that message concluded, classified as probable sub. It is unclear which hard-copy message made its way from Indy's communications office to her bridge. All that is known is that the one clipped into the silver folder was dated July 29th, and that it struck McKissick as routine. If a warship routed itself around every suspected sub, he knew, the U.S. Navy would never get anywhere. As he relieved the watch, McKissick discussed this dispatch with the off-going OOD. The two agreed that even if the sub in question was steering an intercept course, the closest it would come to Indianapolis would be 75 to 100 miles. Glenn Morgan was just finishing up his watch when his friend, Quartermaster Third Class Vincent Allard, showed up for the 8 p.m. to midnight watch, along with one of his strikers, the new kid, Billy Emery. Captain McVeigh came to the bridge, and Morgan listened as he and McKissick assessed the visibility. Allard had already noticed that it was too poor even to visually determine the direction of the swells. McVeigh and McKissick walked out onto the port bridge wing to evaluate the sky. Though it was still technically twilight, as the sun had set less than an hour before, the darkness was already so nearly absolute that neither man could distinguish the features of the others on the bridge, just a few feet away. In the tropics, the transition from day to night passes quickly. McVeigh told McKissick that at the end of the evening twilight, he could secure from zigzagging and return the ship to base course. Aye, sir, McKissick said. Allard entered the captain's order in the deck log. It was standard procedure to cease zigzagging as full darkness fell when visibility was poor. The standing orders, a sheaf of typewritten pages tucked into the back of the regular night order book, required the OOD to notify the captain immediately of any changes in sea conditions or weather. McVeigh departed the bridge. And when darkness fully blanketed Indianapolis, the helmsman began steering a straight course.
As I-58 cruised on the surface, squalls fought each other aloft but did not trouble the sea. Hashimoto had hoped to remain on the surface, but a thick marine layer clotted the area, and he could see no farther than if he had been staring into the bottom of an iron tea kettle. The moon would rise in two hours. Perhaps visibility would improve then. Hashimoto ordered a dive and set a westward course at a submerged speed of two knots. He went to the wardroom, having left orders to be roused at 10.30 p.m. Two-thirds of the crew also found places to lie down, stripped off their uniforms, and sprawled naked in all corners of the sub, atop torpedoes and rice sacks, even between shelves. Silence seeped through the dimly lit boat, interrupted only by the air conditioning plant, the whisper of hydroplanes and rudders, and the scurrying of rats. These vermin were ubiquitous on IJN submarines. A perfect plague, Hashimoto thought, impossible to keep down. He had offered 20 yen cash plus an extra night of shore leave to any man who caught and killed one. Now he stripped off his uniform, lay down in his bunk, and listened to the strange music of his subaqueous domain. 13. July 29, 1945. Near midnight. The Philippine Sea. There was scuttlebutt flying around Radio 1 that evening. Radio 1 was the main communication shack and was located at the base of the ship's forward superstructure, one level above the forecastle deck, where Admiral Spruance did his laps when he was aboard. A sailor leaning over the rail on the starboard bridge wing could see the door to Radio 1. Radio 2 was much farther aft, tucked in behind the second smokestack. Fifteen or twenty minutes before midnight, Lieutenant Junior Grade David Driscoll, the communications watch officer, walked from the adjoining office into the main shack and made the gossip official. Got a submarine report, he said to the room. Such messages were decrypted in the comm office, then passed to the OOD, who usually shared them with Commander Janney so that he could check the positions on his charts. Elwin Sturdivant, a Los Angeles native, reported to Radio 1 for the midwatch, along with four other men. He clamped on the headphones, sat down at the mill, and prepared to fish important messages out of the Fox schedule flood. Though only 21, Sturdivant was an old hand by the standards of the war. A radio man second class, he'd served in the ship's radio department since May 1943, and considered the shacks greatly improved since the most recent Mare Island overhaul. Yard technicians had installed several new receivers, two new transmitters, and a direction finder to replace one that had its antenna sheared off by a friendly carrier plane at Okinawa. The crew was in fine shape, too. A couple of new kids, Jack Miner and Fred Hart, had reported in the yard, but a lot of the men were experienced hands, while the division officer, Chief Warrant Officer Leonard T. Woods, was absolutely tops. All the men revered him, both as a technical expert and as a sure-footed leader. Woods exuded the quiet authority of a man much older 
than his 26 years. It was Driscoll, however, who had the duty with Sturtevant. A radio man sat near Sturtevant guarding Jump Fox, which, like the Fox schedule, was another fire hose of coded information. There were a couple of news strikers on duty, trainees in their assigned departments. Seaman Jack Cassidy and James Belcher had perhaps the most important mid-watch job of all, taking care of the coffee gear. Sturtevant registered Driscoll's announcement about the submarine, but was unbothered. Driscoll seemed bland about the message. Apparently, the sub was hundreds of miles south. Lieutenant Commander Stanley Lipsky appeared on the bridge to relieve McKissick at 8 p.m., the 34-year-old gunnery officer from Northampton, Massachusetts, had served as a naval attaché in Helsinki before the war and spoke fluent Russian. He was also a former intelligence officer and naval aviator. Everyone liked Lipsky because he was that rare man who was both fiercely competent and a genuinely nice fellow. This night, he wore two hats, OOD and supervisor of the watch. With him was Lieutenant Redmain, the engineering officer who had relieved the disgruntled DeGrave. Redmain was under instruction as supervisor of the watch and had stood duty on Indy's Bridge only about half a dozen times. Before Indianapolis, he had served on two seaplane tending vessels. Indy was his first chance to serve on a capital ship. When Redmain relieved the watch, he noticed that visibility was very poor, with no moon. Shortly after 8 p.m., Commander Janney, the navigator, appeared briefly on the bridge to deliver the night orders, then returned between 9 and 9.30 p.m. The Wild Hunter encounter had yielded new information, he told Lipsky and Redmayne. A destroyer escort and a patrol bomber, known collectively as a hunter-killer group, had been dispatched to chase a submarine spotted by the merchant ship. The sighting was well ahead of Indianapolis's path, in an area they would pass through at about 8 a.m. the following morning. Meanwhile, in a second-deck berthing area near the stern, Harpo Solea curled around a woolen blanket, trying to catch some shut-eye. The sweltering Pacific heat had turned the compartment into a greenhouse. Solea had drawn a top rack, Nearest the overhead were all the heat collected with no place to escape. He was used to heat, but at home in Arizona, it was the dry bake of the Sonoran Desert, not a boiling hell like out here. He tossed and turned, half-dreaming, and bathed in sweat. Salea! A jostling hand accompanied the whisper. It was his new crew chief, Everett Thorpe, a water tender. Thorpe let Salea know that he was headed topside where it was much cooler and asked his friend to join him. Both men had the 4 a.m. watch. Thorpe suggested that one or the other of them could be responsible for making sure neither overslept. Harpo agreed. Bleary-eyed, he climbed down from his rack, dragging his blanket behind him. It was about 9 p.m. They stopped by the galley and grabbed sandwiches, then climbed up to the main deck where, it appeared, they were late to the party. The heat below decks had driven much of the crew to seek respite topside. Bodies lay everywhere. 
Men tucked under the gun turrets, sprawled out on the forecastle, and under nets that held dozens of life jackets. Just when it seemed they wouldn't find a space large enough to lie down, they found an empty spot on the quarterdeck. Harpo and Thorpe sat down and started eating their sandwiches. Harpo liked Thorpe, who was from the Deep South and one of the few fellows aboard who didn't seem to notice that he was Mexican. On the run over to Tinian, the two had spent almost nine days together in the fire room with Harpo teaching Thorpe to speak a little Spanish. Noticing that Salea was carrying his heavy blanket, Thorpe questioned his judgment. The temperature topside was nearly as sweltering as below. What in the world did he need a blanket for? I can't sleep without it, Harpo said. It goes back to when I was a kid, and if you tease me about it, I'll have to kill you. Thorpe laughed. The truth was that back home in the Sonoran summer, if you slept without a blanket, the mosquitoes would eat you alive. But Harpo thought it was funnier to let Thorpe think the blanket was some kind of childhood quirk. When he finished his sandwich, Harpo stripped off his pants and rolled them into a pillow. He wrapped the blanket around his shoulders and lay down, staring up into the night, unconsciously toying with the St. Anthony's medal that hung around his neck. His mother had given it to him before she left his father. Harpo always wore it for good luck. In the red light of the chart house, McVeigh reviewed the plot and night orders with Janney. The ship was darkened and the door to the chart house was open. A night breeze whispered in, humid and salt-laden. McVeigh stepped out onto the bridge. By now, he estimated, Indianapolis had hit the PIM, the Plan of Intended Movement. Although with the stars imprisoned behind the overcast, they were unable to take a celestial fix to confirm. Soon thereafter, Flynn directed the ship's speed increased to about 17 knots. I want to have a little bit of gravy up my sleeve in case we have to use it, Flynn said, by which he meant make up ground they'd lost while zigzagging. That was fine with McVeigh. It would make a difference of only a few miles, and anyway, McVeigh remembered what Commander Carter said. Things were quiet. He could feel Indy undulating through long, deep swells, along with an irregular lateral motion. Even in the darkness, he could glimpse the fitful sloshing of ghostly whitecaps. This indicated a confused sea, driven by opposite-direction weather patterns, potentially hundreds of miles away. Moonrise was expected a half-hour before midnight, but it was now nearly 11 p.m., and the quartermaster, Allard, hadn't seen even a hint of it yet. The bridge was so utterly dark that Allard couldn't tell his strikers apart unless he got right up in their faces. Lookout stations were fully manned. Both wings of the navigation bridge had a pair of sailors on permanent stations with mounted binoculars. There were more lookouts with binoculars one level lower on the signal bridge, as well as additional full-time lookouts with mounted binoculars at Sky Amidships, near the number two stack. In all, no less than twelve men with binoculars were on watch at all times. The 20-millimeter and 40-millimeter gun crews each had a man dedicated to lookout duty, adding ten more pairs of eyes. All night long, a petty officer would make regular rounds to ensure 
all these men were doing their jobs instead of catching a few winks. Having given his stateroom to Captain Edwin Crouch, a friend and fellow Academy grad who had hitched a ride at Guam, McVeigh retired to his emergency cabin, less than ten paces aft of the bridge. The air in the tiny space sweltered. He stripped naked and lay down in his rack. Near his head, a voice tube from the bulkhead connected him with the OOD. Murmured conversation from the bridge floated through it into the cabin and carried him down to sleep. A few minutes before midnight, Casey Moore relieved Lipsky as supervisor of the watch and took a turn around the navigation bridge. All watchstanders were posted and alert. McVeigh had ordered yoke modified, a cruising condition normally set when there was little threat of attack. Under the standard wartime steaming condition, known simply as yoke, a cruiser of Indies class was zipped up much too tightly for comfortable cruising. To seal the number of doors and hatches required for maximum watertight integrity would mean stifling both ventilation and the ability of essential watch personnel to move forward and aft. Shortly after the war began, yoke modified became the new standard for older cruisers. Aboard Indy, this configuration was more habit than prescribed. Main deck and second deck doors were left completely open, as were select others. While this improved the flow of air and personnel, it would also improve the flow of seawater through adjoining compartments if Indy were hit, potentially flooding the ship. The condition was a holdover from the previous skipper. Moore and McVeigh had discussed revising the damage control organization and procedures, even sending the ship's damage control books down to San Diego so the trainers there could prepare appropriate damage control and battle problems. But the special mission to Tinian yanked Indy out of the state so quickly that they'd had to send a messenger down to retrieve the books immediately. On the navigation bridge, L.D. Cox had his headphones on and was ready to pass data back and forth to the engine room. It had been pitch black when he first took the watch at midnight. Now, though, the clouds had begun to break apart, and he glimpsed quick silver slivers of moon. Bugler Donald Mack ducked into the chart house to talk with the quartermaster on watch, Jimmy French. Billy Emery a spanking new graduate of quartermaster school in Bainbridge, Maryland, was there too. This was Emery's first ship. Since she looked to be in dry dock for months and unlikely to see action again, his father, Lieutenant Commander John Emery, had pulled some strings to get Billy stationed on Indianapolis. As ordered, I-58's petty officer of the watch had roused Hashimoto at 10.30 p.m., with nothing new to report. Hashimoto dressed, visited the shrine, then mounted the conning tower, where he could use the periscope. Night battle stations, he announced. It was a routine order, something to keep the men on their toes. As the crew hustled to comply, he let his eyes adjust to the darkness. Hashimoto ordered the diving officer to make his depth 60 feet. It was 11 p.m. Moonrise was nearly 60 minutes old. Raise night periscope, Hashimoto said. 
When the instrument was just clear of the surface, he bent to the eyepiece and had a quick look around. The Earth's rotation had already flung the nearly full moon high into the eastern sky. It flirted with heavy cloud cover, lunar light glinting off the heaving sea. Hashimoto could almost see the horizon. At intervals, the moon shook herself free of clouds, and he judged the light sufficient for a submerged attack. He nudged the periscope higher, then swept the head window left and right, scanning carefully. Standby Type 13 radar. Crewman raised the antenna above the surface and detected no aircraft. With no skyborne enemy and a clean sea, Hashimoto decided to surface and look for enemy ships. He gave the order, and I 58's crew leapt into motion. Alarm bells sounded, sailors hurried to their posts. Hashimoto snapped the periscope handles into their housing. Surface, blow main ballast. High pressure air rushed into the main tanks, expelling seawater and lifting the boat. I 58 broke the surface. When her decks were awash, the conning tower hatch was cracked open, sending a welcome stream of fresh air into the ship. Ears popped as pressure inside the boat equalized with the atmosphere. When the pressure was fully equalized, a signalman climbed onto the bridge, followed by the navigator, who was intent on trying to take at least a partial celestial fix. The surface radar operator prepared to scan the area. Hashimoto was still scanning through the night periscope when he heard the navigator shout, Bearing red, nine zero degrees, a possible enemy ship. Hashimoto lowered the night periscope, bounded to the bridge, and raised his binoculars. Yes, there it was. A black spot on the horizon, hanging on the rays of the moon. Hashimoto uttered a single word, dive. The four men on the bridge slid down the ladder. The last man down, the signalman, pulled the hatch closed. Hashimoto manned the periscope again. The black shape was still there, clear through the head window. Open the vents, he said. As the main ballast tank vents opened, water gushed into the tanks, and I-58 slid down until the lid of the sea closed above her. Ship in sight, Hashimoto said. An invisible charge shot through his crew, man to man. In the four years since he first lurked off Pearl Harbor, never had Hashimoto been in such a potentially advantaged position. The dark silhouette drew closer, but he could not yet discern the class of ship. What if I-58 had already been detected? What if the shape was a destroyer pressing in for the kill? Thick darkness concealed Hashimoto's face from the others in the conning tower, and he worked to keep his voice composed. All tubes to the ready, he said. Chiton, stand by. 14. July 30, 1945. Midnight, the Philippine Sea. Marine Corporal Edward Harrell got off watch a little before midnight and decided to sleep topside again. The night before, he and a buddy named Munson had bedded down atop the number one gun turret. 
There were a couple of big life rafts lashed to the turret's gently sloping roof, so it was nice and comfortable up there. The only problem was that it was against regulations. With Indy's interior sweltering, Harold wanted to avoid his bunk again, but he also wanted to avoid getting busted down in pay grade. Munson had opted for the life rafts again, but there was some open deck space under the barrels of the same gun. Harold decided to sleep there. The night was thick and warm. Harold spread his blanket on the steel deck and tucked his shoes under his head for a pillow. As he gazed up at the sky, moonlight sifted down through the overcast, then disappeared again. He felt tired and homesick. Harold thanked God for his protection and asked him to watch over his family and Ola May, his girl back home. The deep hum of Indy's engines and the swooshing of her wake carried him down toward dreams. Well forward of Harold on the bow, Harpo's friend Santos Pena, stretched out on top of a ready box full of 20-millimeter ammunition and gazed up into the moonlit clouds. His lookout shift would begin shortly, but for now, he welcomed the silky night breeze. I-58's crew waited, breathless. The black shape on the horizon soon gathered itself into the shape of a triangle suspended in the moon's silver light. But looking through the night periscope, Hashimoto still could not determine her class. Neither could he see the height of her mast in order to estimate the range. This lack of data opened the door to an array of possible mistakes, and his mind ticked through them all. Without the range, course, and speed of the target, he could not make the proper calculations to obtain a hit. If the class of ship were known, he could estimate the speed by counting the target's propeller blade frequency, but the hydrophones remained silent. And with the target pointed directly at him, its hull was masking sonar sounds. He would have to wait until the target was on a broader line of sight to ferret out its speed. Also, changes in the target's speed and course could throw off Hashimoto's aim, especially at night so the moment of firing had to be determined in advance. A whole kingdom of errors loomed. But if Hashimoto could keep them small and fire six torpedoes in a fan-wise spread, he would ensure a hit. Even if he guessed wrong on one of the variables, or even if the target zigzagged, as it was almost sure to do. A crisp demand interrupted his calculations. Send us! It was the suicide pilots. Hashimoto had been so preoccupied with his Type 95 torpedo calculations that he had not followed up on his earlier order for the chitin. Why can't we be launched? The pilots clamored. Hashimoto understood their desire. The chitin could steer to the target, regardless of its speed or course. But the touch-and-go... Obscured visibility would make it difficult for the pilots to home in visually on the target over a period of tens of minutes. To get a Type 95 torpedo hit, all he needed was a reasonable estimate of speed and range, along with one good bearing, and he could send his fish to their target. That was the better option here. So he decided not to use the chitin, 
unless the oxygen torpedoes failed to hit their mark. Hashimoto put his eye to the scope again and saw the top of the triangle resolve into two distinct shapes. He could make out a large mast forward and estimated its height at 90 feet. His heartbeat quickened. She appeared to be a large cruiser, 10,000 tons or bigger. Now I-58's hydrophones gurgled to life, announcing enemy propeller revolutions that were moderately high. Using visual observations, Hashimoto adjusted and put the target speed at 12 knots. Course 260, range 3,000 yards. He alone could see all this. Without him, the crew would know nothing. As they awaited his word, straining in the deadly quiet, an exhilarating thought formed in his mind. We've got her.